It's an absolute joy and delight to be here. Uh, it has been a long time since I've been to Tennessee. Uh, I was introduced as residential canon of Brecon Cathedral, but you may detect from my accent that I'm not Welsh. I'm actually from Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, and only moved to the UK uh, 11 years ago. Uh, my father's British, so it gives me sort of a mid-Atlantic accent. But it's good to be back in the South, not least because I can finally bring some culture to my Welsh wife. Uh, and I've, I've taught her to eat barbecue and how to say daug, um, but that's about as far as I've got so far. Uh, may I say how splendid to hear such a good choir if you ever fancy singing uh, in a 14th century Benedictine priory, let me know. We'll, we'll get you on our visiting choir list. And, and you poor fellows, you're going to have to sit through my sermon. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'm probably going to sleep through it because I'm jet lagged. So if you sleep through it, I won't notice. Okay? Does that sound all right? Good. So as we say in Wales, Diochenvaur, thank you very much for, for having me here, uh, and I look forward to Sunday school, and I look forward to this whole week. And I will, I will begin with invoking God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Welsh. Amen. Have you ever noticed that God has an interesting sense of humor? that usually pops up at the most inopportune times. I was reminded of this when I was looking at the readings for today. Because in a few days at the conference that is being held here, I am going to be giving a whole talk on how the great 4th, 5th century Bishop Augustine of Hippo called for the church to, be, to embrace eloquence and wisdom to be an eloquent and wise church. And then we get in today's epistle, St. Paul saying, thank God I didn't come to you preaching with eloquent wisdom. Thank you, Paul. Fortunately, he doesn't undermine what I'm talking about, and he actually gives us a way into understanding the gospel reading for today, where Jesus calls for us to be both salt and light, and not to lose our saltiness, and not to hide our light under a bushel. And a good way of understanding how what he's talking about is to go there via Corinth. And so I'm going to begin by giving you all something that you would love to do in the winter, and that is a brief holiday to sunny Greece. I'm going to take you to first century Corinth. In many ways, a place that would be very strange to us, but in many ways, the congregation perhaps being a little bit more familiar to us. Corinth was an interesting place to try and get a church going. It was at once a kind of New York City, a great commercial center, a great finance center, a place that uh, was very wealthy from the commerce, working its way from the eastern Mediterranean to Rome. 
So it was kind of a New York City, but at the same time, not least because it was a place where lots of sailors visited and soldiers were based, that was known for, shall we say, its loose living. So you could say it was at once New York and Las Vegas. What happened in Corinth stays in Corinth. In fact, in the Roman Empire, to be called a Corinthian was worse than calling someone a Yankee. Marginally. And so it was a strange place, you might say, to try and get a church going. We might say it's exactly the kind of place you want to get a church going. But we must remember that at this point in the church's life, there was very little to connect a congregation to another congregation. When Paul set up a congregation and left them, they didn't have seminary-trained clergy. You may think that's a good thing. They didn't have even what we now call the New Testament. They largely had to figure it out themselves from their knowledge of the Old Testament that they had and with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so a difficult place to start a church. And lo and behold, not surprisingly, their Christianity very, very quickly began to look exactly like the kind of things that first century Greeks prized above everything else. And Paul begins 1 Corinthians in this beautiful way of saying to him, oh, what wonderful people you all are. You're just brilliant. You speak so well. You're so eloquent. And you're so wise. And you can sort of see them going, oh, this is rather nice. I rather like this Paul fellow. He's not quite the crab that Episcopalians think he is. And then he says, thank God I didn't come preaching with eloquent words, lest it rob the cross of its power. He builds them up and says, what a wonderful, smart, well-speaking, charming crowd you are, and that does you no good whatsoever. Does you no good whatsoever because you are reflecting the expectations of the world around you. And by doing that, you are not showing forth Christ crucified. To put this in our own terms, what he's saying to them is, you all are just too middle class. What you think is important is that you're well-mannered and that you've got a good education. But being well-mannered and having a good education didn't save this world. In fact, all those well-mannered, educated people out there didn't even know who Jesus was. Because if they had, they wouldn't have nailed him to a tree. So thank God I didn't come to you as a middle-class Greek. Because it would have robbed the cross of its power. We get here in Paul the beginnings of what is a crucial part of the Christian faith. And that is, to be a witness to the world, we always have to stand ready and on guard against making Christianity reflect what we have been raised to think is important.
Paul, in fact, says, you know how I know that you're not nearly so wise as you think you are? Do you know how I know you're not nearly so smart as you think you are? You're divided. You're falling out with each other. Some of you are saying, I'm for Paul. Some are, I'm for Cephas. Some are saying, I'm for one of the other clergy. And some are even saying, oh, I'm standing above that. I'm for Jesus. And Paul says, you're showing your ignorance. You're showing that you are still babies in Christ because you are divided with each other. Paul, likewise, I think, would say to us today, you call yourselves Episcopalians, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, so on and so on and so on. That shows you're not nearly so clever as Christians, not nearly so faithful as you like to think you are. You are still, 2,000 years later, babies in Christ. Hard words. Hard words. We very much like to think that we're on the side of right. We very much like to think that we are among the few who really understand how the world operates, who really understand truth and goodness and all these wonderful things, unlike all those benighted people out there who are making the world a terrible place. And what happens as soon as we do that? We almost immediately begin to divide ourselves in the same way the world out there divides themselves. We say, I'm a Republican and a Christian. I'm a Democrat and a Christian. I'm a anything you want to say and a Christian. And what we end up doing is showing the world that what happens in here is no different from what happens anywhere else. That actually the Christian faith doesn't materially change who we are as a people. And that then takes us to the gospel. And I think we can see now what Jesus is getting at. Salt that loses its saltiness is no good doesn't flavor anything, doesn't draw attention to itself. Light that is hidden under a bushel does no one any good. It's hidden. You can't see it. To be about the mission of God, to be about the mission of the church, to be about building up the kingdom of God to the world around us, we must be distinctive. We must show not the eloquence of the world out there or the wisdom of the world out there, but God's own eloquence and God's own wisdom so that we then can be salt of the earth and we can be light to people out there who desperately need the gospel, who are every bit as much tearing themselves into tribes and divisions as they ever were in a world that is increasingly dividing itself, itself into warring tribes. The world needs the church to be unified in love and in mutual building up to show them, to show them what the love of God means. Now you all have a distinct advantage over 
the people of my own congregation in Wales in achieving this. They have to overcome the one thing I think the world has devised to, to really get in the way of the gospel, and it's called British Reserve. Getting Brits to go, get together is a bit like pulling teeth. You all, I know, will be dripping with Southern hospitality, really willing to go out there and show people the love of God, not just the people you agree with, not just the people you like, but particularly the people that you think are foolish and the people who drive you up the wall. Those are the ones that God is calling you in humility, in your weakness, even in your failures, to go love. For in loving them, you demonstrate the power of the cross. For Christ, who was without sin, died for us, who were very far gone from God's glory. And so my prayer from Wales to you all is that in your worship and in your service to others, in the way that you love each other, that you all can continue to be and be more and more by God's grace, a beacon to the people here in Nashville of what God's love consists of, of what God's wisdom is, and demonstrate that with an eloquence that melts hearts, an eloquence that delights people deeply with the satisfying and unquenchable joy that is God. Amen.